What's on the horizon for financial markets? At PGIM, it's a question that over 1,400 investment professionals relentlessly research in pursuit of your long-term goals. Specialized across asset classes, but united in collaboration, our teams provide global and local expertise. Our investments shape tomorrow, today. Pursue your tomorrow with PGIM, a leading global asset manager. You're listening to The Exchange. Here's today's show. Hi, everybody. I'm Kelly Evans. Don't be fooled by this market sell-off. The street is still getting more hawkish on the Fed. J.P. Morgan upping its forecast to seven hikes this year after yesterday's Fed minutes. We'll talk to their economist about why and whether a Ukraine crisis would deter the Fed's plans. Stocks have been in the red all day long as President Biden says the threat of a Russian invasion of Ukraine is very high. We've got the latest on that, plus why these tensions could be a boon to the reopening stocks. And in earnings exchange today, we're getting ready for Roku, Redfin, and DraftKings. And it is a tough market to be reporting into right now if you are a highly valued stock still reporting losses. So let's start with this market sell-off. Dom Chu has the latest. Well, the volatility has elevated options prices for sure. So going to earnings, a lot of those options strategies may cost a lot more. We'll get into more of that later on in the show. But right now, the Dow Industrials are down 370 points, about 1%. So yes, a sell-off, but not crazy, not panic by any means. The S&P 544.21, the last trade there, 53 handles to the downside, about one and a quarter percent declines. And has been the case, the Nasdaq, really the epicenter of more of the volatility on a relative basis, down about one and two thirds percent, 235 points to the downside, 13,888 the last trade there. To give you an idea of the trading range of the Nasdaq at the highs of the day, we were down about three quarters of one percent at the lows of the day, down about one point nine percent, nearly two percent. So kind of tilting towards the lower end of that range for right now. As for the other side of the trade. What have been people, what has been bought, I guess, what's been catching the bid, so to speak? It has been gold prices. You can see they're up about one and a half percent. And by the way, gold prices are now at the highest levels going all the way back to June. So keep an eye on those. Meanwhile, the 10-year Treasury note yield, you can see they're actually moving a little bit now below the 2% mark. So again, a bid for those prices coming in. Also watching what's happening right now with the real kind of downside draft that we are seeing in technology, the worst performing sector so far today, and chip stocks, semiconductors, very much a part of that downside story. NVIDIA comes out with a better than expected report. Even the outlook's pretty good, but the stock is still selling off in this downdraft. Some concerns about profit margins may be factoring into the mix there. NXP semiconductors, microchip technologies, KLA Corporation, and to that end, the overall index for ETFs tied to semiconductors down about 2.5%. So, yes, technology not working. Gold, treasury bonds working. We'll see if that dynamic holds. Again, Russia, Ukraine, very much front and center. Back over to you. Well, that pretty much sums things up, Dom. Thanks. Well, the calls on Wall Street that the Fed will be more aggressive this year continue to grow. The latest to join the chorus is J.P. Morgan, which is now calling for seven hikes this year, up from five following yesterday's Fed minutes. Let's bring in the man behind the call. Michael Faroli is chief U.S. economist at J.P. Morgan. It's great to see you again, Mike. Welcome. Hi, Kelly. So why the minutes, which, you know, to the markets at the time were a little bit of a snooze event, but to you, they were significant. So it's a really a number of developments here that have led us to rethink our Fed call. Obviously, the inflation news uh, last week was not only pretty high, but some of the details of the numbers suggest that this inflation is going to be with us for a while. I think some of the Fed rhetoric, even outside of the minutes, uh, is consistent with even the doves turning toward a more steady path of, uh, of rate hikes. 
I do think the fact that other uh, DM central, developed market central banks are uh, getting more hawkish also probably gives the Fed a little more leeway to increase rates more steadily uh, without provoking a big reaction in the dollar. Uh, so all these factors suggest to us that uh, it doesn't look like the Fed will indeed pause when they start uh, uh, QT, which we probably expect sometime this summer, uh, and that there probably won't be enough of a uh, deterioration in financial conditions, perhaps, that would cause them to pause either. So right now, it looks like they're going to probably be on a hike of meeting uh, schedule until things yeah. uh, you know, until things <laughs> turn around. Here so you basically bit. expect the number of quarter point rate hikes as meetings that are left this year. And you pointed out that Mary Daly of the San Francisco Fed used the word measured to describe the pace of hikes, which we saw when they did the same thing in 2004 to 2006. How bad would the Russia-Ukraine situation have to get to deter them from that kind of approach mm -hmm. this year or to deter them from starting next month? Sure. So, you know, it, it was interesting those minutes pointed to uh, Russia-Ukraine as potentially a downside growth risk and an upside inflation risk, which on the face of it would suggest uh, a bit of a dilemma for the Fed. Hawkish, I, yeah. Yeah, uh, but I think in reality what you have seen in the past is when you have these big price spikes uh, in oil, uh, the growth effect tends to be more important for the Fed if inflation expectations remain reasonably well anchored, which they have you know, thus far, even with all the inflation news we've, ha we've seen. So I would expect Russia-Ukraine, particularly if it got really nasty, would be, the focus would be on more on the adverse growth developments. Would that be enough to get them to uh, not go in March? Hard to say unless you had a really big deterioration, particularly in market conditions. Uh, but I think most likely, even though in principle it's a dilemma, I think the Fed would probably focus more on the adverse growth uh, implications. You do. So, in, and most people still expect that, that the risk of any big thing would spook them off of that tightening. There are the economic doves who say that the inflation situation will resolve itself as we get to the end of the year, especially if vehicle prices fall. Mm -hmm. Basically, I've seen the argument that if vehicle prices fall 20 percent, we don't have an inflation problem anymore. Do you buy that? Not really. Uh, I think that would give us some short term relief on some of the monthly prints. Uh, however, uh, I think two developments are kind of pushing the opposite direction. One is that rental inflation has really picked up lately. And that's probably going to persist for a while. And that's a much bigger component of the CPI than the vehicle prices. And probably more important is what we're seeing in wages. Wages now across a variety of measures have been running uh, really strong. And that is also likely to persist. And that carries with it the risk of the so-called wage price spiral, which is something the Fed really wants to avoid. So I think even, yes, and I would say we're also looking for some near-term or medium-term relief, let's say, on some of the monthly prints once uh, the auto situation gets a little more normal. But even away from autos, I think there are now more macroeconomic factors at play, particularly as it relates to the labor market that suggests, you know, this isn't, I think the transitory story had plausibility, uh, you know, in the spring and summer of last year. But I think as we got into the fall and started to see really remarkable tightening in labor market conditions, that became more of a classic macroeconomic story. Uh, and also one that, you know, certainly it's not all a bad story, but it is one that calls for uh, for policy that is not highly accommodative. That's for sure. So I, I do think uh, some optimism, medium term optimism on inflation is warranted, but it's not enough, I think, to get the Fed to, um, uh, you know, want to get away in a steady pace from uh, 
uh, from their current very accommodative conditions. One final question, Mike, again, it's a granular one, but let's talk about rent inflation, which mm -hmm. if it is a bigger component, you know, okay, it's up, I think, 4% over the past year. There've been so many questions from people who say, how is that possible? Rents are up double digits in other surveys. Where do you think rent inflation is going? Is it going to hit 6% or 8% or higher? And how long might that take? So first of all, when you look at uh, the CPI compared to some of the industry measures, they're often measuring different things, right? So those industry measures will measure asking rents, whereas the CPI covers all existing um, rental arrangements. Uh, however, those, those industry measures have been good leading indicators, and I would expect that uh, the rental inflation pressure should probably increase somewhat from here, but I wouldn't expect them to get to the, the kind of double-digit uh, uh, gains that you, you alluded to in, in some of those industry measures. Yeah, even, even further upward pressure from here um, mm -hmm. would be a, a difficult scenario for the Fed. Mike, thanks for joining us to talk sure. about these forecasts and what it means. We really appreciate it today. My pleasure. Michael Faroli is the chief U.S. economist at J.P. Morgan. All right, Dom mentioned this, but the price of gold is touching an eight-month high as U.S. officials say Russia is moving toward an imminent invasion. Russia, one of the largest producers of palladium as well, so concerns there are pushing palladium prices back up to their highest level since September. And these new headlines have the Vanek Russia ETF, the RSX, on pace to snap a three-day winning streak. Now it's down 27% from its highs, 4% lower today. Let's get to Kayla Tausche. She is in Washington with the latest on a very busy headline day. Kayla? Kelly, President Biden, the U.S. ambassador to the United Nations, and the Secretary of State all today saying that Russia is increasing, not decreasing, its military capacity along the border of Ukraine and preparing to invade in the coming days. The U.N. Security Council meeting in New York today to discuss adherence to a 2014 peace agreement meant to stabilize eastern Ukraine, of which Russia says Ukraine's government is running afoul. Secretary Blinken rejecting that claim and laying out in blistering detail how Russia would attack the country, staging various types of attacks and blaming Kyiv, some of which he says are already happening, then striking by air, cutting communications, and moving tanks and troops toward pre identified targets and people. Lincoln said if Russia decides not to invade Ukraine, it should do this. State it clearly. State it plainly to the world. And then demonstrate it by sending your troops, your tanks, your planes back to their barracks and hangars and sending your diplomats to the negotiating table. Russia delivered to the U.S. Embassy in Moscow a written response to Washington's security proposals that was delivered overnight. This morning, President Biden said that as of today, he did not plan to speak to President Putin. Kelly. All right, Kayla, thank you. We'll check back in soon. Kayla Tausche. What does it all mean for U.S. policy and for the market? Joining us now is Dan Clifton, head of policy research at Strategus Research Partners. Dan, it's great to have you. I'm going to kind of flip this on its head and start with one of the interesting market takeaways that is, is yep. buried in your analysis which is yep. that it might drive people to look at re U.S. reopening stocks, right? So Absolutely. we're going to see movement out of, you know, some of the more sensitive parts of the market towards ones that are perceived to be a bit more of a haven. Yeah, I thought your first guest talking about the Fed trade-off of inflation and slower growth was an interesting analysis. You saw it in the Fed minutes. And so there's just a lot of geopolitical concerns now building into an inflation and slower growth story and compounding that. And one way to, to invest around that is to be in the reopening stocks. These are stocks that are benefiting from Omicron beginning to fade. They haven't really done much over the last six to eight months. Those are travel stocks, sports stocks, uh, anything related to services over goods. And so that's one place where we see our clients beginning to hide. This has been going on for about two weeks. 
But Kelly, there are other places to think about as well as you start thinking about this greater geopolitical consequence. Sure. Defense stocks, which did not have a good year or catching a bid, because let's think about the policy. Congress is debating a new uh, budget, and it looks like the defense budget is probably going to get even more than the $25 billion increase that was being negotiated last year. That number may come out closer to about 30%. So you're looking at about a 6 to 6 to 7% increase in the defense budget. That's going to happen regardless of whether Russia invades Ukraine. But the U.S. is beginning to build up its military resources, knowing that there are greater geopolitical challenges in front of us. Sure. And so that one could be not so much the very near term, but even kind of a beneficiary in the next year or two. You mentioned Absolutely. the reopening stocks. What about yep. the rest of the market, Dan? Yeah. So, you know, I look at this and I say that there's this very unknown. Nobody really knows how this is going to play out. We could talk about the probabilities and options of what's going to happen. But if you saw tanks crossing over into Ukraine in the next couple of days, that's a risk off movement. That means that yields start to come in a little bit after a dramatic rise in yields. And you'll start to see the dollar catch the bid. You know, I thought the dollar would weaken this year, uh, but this would delay that because people are going to look for a flight to safety. I think you're seeing that in gold prices today as well. We're also probably going to wind up having an executive order on crypto next week from mm -hmm. President Biden. So that also helps gold. So unrelated to this, but still uh, a, another factor that gets that gets layered on top of it. What What's very interesting to us is how the sanctions will work, Kelly. The U.S. is clearly going to put export controls in place, denying Russia from sensitive technologies. This was a playbook that President Trump used with China. You'll now see that extrapolated out to Russia. So semiconductors and artificial intelligence, anything that the Russian military can use. So there is a negative feedback effect there on tech if that is going to happen. And then additionally, if you look at what's happening on what the main driver of this debate is, it's energy. Yeah. And so the Nord Stream 2 pipeline will likely be sanctioned. Now, Germany may be resistant to those sanctions, but the U.S. can actually deny dollar transactions for any company that is involved in the Nord Stream 2 pipeline if there is not coordination between the U.S. and Germany. That is a very big event. That's not removing Russia off the SWIFT transaction. That's an even bigger move. This is just denying dollar transactions. It is a very big deal if the U.S. used it and would affect companies that are involved in the Nord Stream 2 pipeline. And so what you see here is energy catching a bid. Energy stocks continue to go up. We are redirecting our LNG tankers out of Asia into Europe to try and get as much energy into Europe as a hedge if there is going to be some sort of attack. So a final question, since you've definitely laid out the market impact, you know, which I appreciate, is actually a yep. political one. You know, we have the midterms coming up. We've already seen kind of at least one floated proposal to cut the gasoline tax, uh, which yep. would try to mitigate some of the upward pressure that we're seeing. What other kinds of maneuvers might we expect in the months ahead to take some of the sting out of this? Absolutely. So the, the political environment has changed here dramatically. Less COVID restrictions and more trying to deal with inflation. We now have 17 governors proposing to cut gasoline and grocery taxes because of inflation. And that is now starting to hit in the United States. Democrats in key states up for re-election this year in the Senate are talking about cutting the gasoline tax. You're starting to see a lot more uh, discussion about 
uh, uh, drug pricing, which may seem unrelated, but it's one way of saying that you're getting inflation under control. Right. Obviously, Russia exacerbates that if you're going to have higher oil prices in the short run. Um, and so the Democrats are trying to figure out how to create an inflation bill. That's going to be very difficult to do, but that's really a big change that's happened in Washington over the last two weeks. It's fascinating. You're right. These are now the, the, what's coming to the fore. Dan, great to have you. Appreciate it today. Great. Thank you, Kelly. Dan Clifton with Strategus. Let's take a break. Coming up, banks are lower with the broader market today, but there's an under-the-radar risk to the group my next guest says investors need to be wary of. He's got some great numbers. Mike Mayo joins me after the break. Plus, what do Roku, Redfin, and DraftKings all have in common? All are 69% off their all-time highs. Look at those figures. They're all reporting results within the next 16 hours. We'll get you a little preview with the story and the trade ahead in earnings exchange. Don't go anywhere. This is The Exchange on CNBC. Electricity, a big idea that's inspired countless new ones. From powering the light bulb to virtually powering our entire lives. 30 years ago, State Street launched the Spider S&P 500 ETF, SPY. A big idea that inspired the world to invest differently. And still does. What can you do with SPY? Before investing, consider the funds, investment objectives, risks, charges, and expenses. Visit SSGA.com for a prospectus containing this and other information. Read it carefully before investing. SPY is subject to risks similar to those of stocks. All ETFs are subject to risk, including possible loss of principal. Alps Distributors, Inc. Distributor. CNBC has quick and easy to understand business news updates at the open midday and close every weekday. Markets, money, and more from Wall Street to Main Street. I'm CNBC's Jessica Ettinger. Follow and listen to CNBC Business News Updates wherever you get your podcasts. Rising wages, worker shortages, career shifting, it's a story well known across the country. But my next guest says the war for talent is particularly acute at the big banks. We learned that during earnings season. And in order to keep up, they're going to have to be more flexible about non-cash comps and perks. Joining me now is Mike Mayo. He's a senior banking analyst at Wells Fargo. Mike, I noticed behind Mike Faroli's shot last block, J.P. Morgan dress code a little more casual these days. Well, I mean, I think uh, the banking industry needs to have more form of non-cash compensation. So that's more job flexibility, remote, uh, the way you dress, different types of perks, and banks need to do that to better compete for technology talent. The war for talent in the in the banking industry and overall has never been this intense, and especially for technologists. Uh, as you know, as, as, as I've said on your show before, uh, you have the tech revolution at banks, and to facilitate that, you need the employees. Yeah, and I w give us the numbers because, and, and we saw this, remember Goldman was, uh, J.P. Morgan in particular, Goldman, you know, these banks are reporting higher expenses primarily tied to comp, and you have some pretty incredible numbers you can kind of put to this. What are they facing in the, in the quarters to come? Well, we lowered our numbers actually back in December. Uh, since then, uh, the wages continue to increase, and, uh, you know, it's from all levels, from the the bottom to the top, but especially for technologists, you're seeing increases from 20 to 30 to 40 percent or, or even more. Um, and you've had several bank CEOs say it's never been this hard to get tech talent. So if you if you have kids, tell them to go in the, the, 
the technology world because there's going to be enough jobs for them for the next decade. Yeah. And let's before I move on, because what you're saying about city is especially provocative right now. But for the banks, broadly speaking, they're in a tough environment. All of a sudden you have a yield curve that doesn't look that great. Now we have the numbers you're talking about in terms of expenses. What does it all mean in terms of headwinds for EPS this year? Well, actually, I would be very positive. There's a rate windfall from higher interest rates. The question is, some banks are spending that rate windfall on things like higher wages for employees. So that's a an offsetting factor. But still, overall, the, the, the backdrop is good for banks. But this is an issue that we need to watch. All right. So let's talk about Citi in particular. You're saying replace the board. How bad are things getting over there as far as you're concerned? Well, I would say replace the board at Citi. There's the what, the why, and the who. The what is we see an expense shock at Citi with technology, regulation, and higher wages. Uh, we estimate that consensus EPS for 2022 at Citi is 20%. That's 20% too high. We estimate that their restructuring will cost $10 billion over several years. And the question is why? Uh, a few years ago, they said our restructuring is done. They said it at their annual meeting. They said it on an earnings call. They said it at uh, their last investor day. They said it on page two of the 2017 annual report. So Citigroup management said restructuring is done, restructuring is done, restructuring is done. And then boom, you get hit in the face with what we estimate $10 billion of spending for another restructuring. So at some point, you need to hold the board accountable. And 11 of the 15 members of the board were in place in 2017 and 2018 when management proclaimed on multiple occasions in multiple venues that they had no more restructuring. And here we go again. So enough, enough. And by the way, not one person globally has said they disagree with this conclusion. And one more thing is the cost of fixing their legacy issues is even more now given the, the wage and other inflation. That's a great point. But you still think this, you like some of the things the new CEO is doing. You still think the stock could double if they get this right. Yeah, but we're giving a big heads up. Uh, the first investor day for the new CEO, Jane Frazier, is in two weeks. And Citigroup, uh, we think, has to get the news out that their expenses will be much higher. Their earnings will be much less than people expect in 2022. So you're going to have to take a longer time frame when you take a look at Citigroup. But, you know, she has the potential to be a change agent. They're selling off their Mexican consumer business. They're making some of the tough decisions. But in the meanwhile, you're seeing the cost of this new restructuring uh, be much more than I think people expect. Fair point. It's already been a long horizon if you go back to the financial crisis uh, for this stock. Mike, thanks for joining us today. It's great to see you. Thank you. Mike Mayo. Coming up, oil moving lower today, despite those rising tensions between Russia and Ukraine. While everyone's paying close attention to that conflict, there's a different geopolitical game changer unfolding a couple thousand miles south of the Kremlin. We'll tell you what it is and why it's pushing the energy complex lower. CNBC has quick and easy to understand business news updates at the open midday and close every weekday. Markets, money, and more from Wall Street to Main Street. I'm CNBC's Jessica Ettinger. Follow and listen to CNBC Business News Updates wherever you get your podcasts. Welcome back to The Exchange, everybody. Not a pretty day in markets, but we're actually about 100 points off the session low for the Dow, which is down 402 right now. Uh, It's the outperformer, the S&P down 1.4%, the Nasdaq down more than 2%. 
The cloud stocks coming back to earth or crashing back in the case of Fastly. This stock is on pace for its worst day ever after giving disappointing guidance. It's down 32% today. It's under $20 a share. You also see Octo, CrowdStrike, Zscaler, Splunk, all lower by at least 5% today. It's also been a February to forget for FinTech, a firm down 10% today, down 40% since the first of this month. It's having its worst month ever. It's tracking for its fourth straight monthly decline of more than 20%. Really difficult day there. It's down 80% from its all-time high in November. Toast, Coinbase, Robinhood, all lower. Toast is down another 11.5%. Coinbase is down 9%. Even Block uh, um, in the list as well. But it's not all bad. It's not all red out there. And surprisingly, Chinese tech is one of the few outperformers today. This was true even prior to Kathy Wood's uh, appearance on Halftime last hour. The K-Web China Internet ETF fractionally higher. It's quietly on pace for a weekly and monthly gain. You can see some holdings ah, like KE uh, up about 2%. Let's get to Melissa Lee now for a CNBC News update. Hi, Melissa. Hey there, Kelly. Here's what's happening at this hour. Oklahoma has executed Gilbert Ray Postel for his role in a quadruple slaying in 2005. Postel did not deny his involvement in the slaying, but his attorney argued that his client suffered from a learning disability. This is Oklahoma's fourth execution since the state resumed the practice in October. The U.S. Senate is launching a bipartisan working group of lawmakers to scrutinize conditions within the Bureau of Prisons. This follows reports from the Associated Press that uncovered widespread corruption and abuse within federal prisons. Tune into the news tonight at 7 p.m. Eastern for more on the policies and proposals the group is aiming to develop. Meantime, the head of the FAA, Steve Dixon, says he wants a systemic fix from Boeing to address production issues with the 787 Dreamliner. However, the FAA says its new directive will not be a choke point for Dreamliner deliveries. Dixon also says he was not pressured to leave the FAA halfway through his five-year term. Instead, he says the White House asked him to stay. Dixon announced he is leaving the agency at the end of March to spend more time with his family. That's the latest. Kelly, back to you. All right, Melissa, thank you very much. And still ahead with the Dow down 400 points, we'll look at three stocks on sale right now that my next guest says are good buys to ride out the volatility. Stay with us. Welcome back to The Exchange. Market's been watching inflation data closely the past year, but Kathy Wood thinks there are serious deflationary forces in the market. Here's what she just said on the Halftime Report. I do think there's going to that the, the deflationary forces that are building up in the economy today are, are pretty strong. Uh, two are secular, one is cyclical. Um, and, and, and the bond market is sort of getting this. If you look at what's happened to the yield curve, so the difference between long rates and short rates, um, it has flattened uh, from, I think, 155 basis points last March to 45 basis points today. And if the Fed did go 50 basis points in, in March, which they might, they might, uh, I think that it would be one and done then, uh, we'll end up with an inverted yield curve. And then what are people going to think? Well, an inverted yield curve and the flattening yield curve says, watch out, something's going on here. Either growth is going to disappoint or inflation is going to be much lower than expected or both. Uh, and, and we think both is right. Joining me now with his take on the markets is Barry James. He's president and portfolio manager at James Investment Research. I think you have a very different investment style, but you are both still stock pickers, Barry, you and Kathy. So could you just quickly respond to her point as we sort of set up the, the stocks that you do like here? What do you make about her points on deflation? 
Well, uh, if I look at the uh, the Fed's what they look at in terms of inflation, uh, the PCE is is pretty high. But there is another version of it that the Dallas Fed puts out, and it is not very high. It's only in, in the two percent range. So maybe we don't have it quite as bad as uh, as as might be uh, imagined. Uh, as far as deflation goes, we we're not real sure about that because we see the economy is really coming along. We you know we we talked about previously this two-headed dragon uh, hung from China. And one was COVID and the other side was the Fed. And the, the COVID side is going to sleep here and around the globe. And that's very important when it comes to what you invest in, because reopening is going to be on its way. And that's probably going to be a, a real positive, even as we see other things like supply lines and so forth open up. Yeah. So you have a couple of names, three names in particular here that you think are a good opportunity for people to own right now. What are they? Right. Uh, Nova Limited, uh, if you make a semiconductor, you have to have equipment that monitors the process and measures things. That's what it does. It's small. And again, when you get into a reopening, small value companies are the right way to go. And so we think you ought to be building there. So that one, it fits that bill. Great earnings and uh, great prospects, and, and they're really opening up wider and wider. Another in the small category in the energy area is Matador, more Permian Basin, very well-run company, great you know, free cash flow and revenues and low debt. It's got all of those things. And then fifth third, I know there's been a lot of talk about you know, maybe these guys can't afford the people that they hire, but fifth third's really smart in what they've done, moving out of the Midwest down into the Southeast. But even better than that, if you look at their loan portfolio, lots of floating rate notes, which means as rates go higher, guess mm. what? They get paid more. <laughs> Absolutely. Um, what, what, give some parting thoughts on the market here more broadly, Barry. I mean, can people feel comfortable being long equities for the next, you know, for the duration of the year? I don't think they feel comfortable at all. Yeah. <laughs> and that's the, that's that Fed head, you know, of the dragon. It's biting all around. It hasn't hit anything yet, really. Uh, but we see the market really got into trouble when you went from three rate hikes to people expecting four, five, six rate hikes. And then all the stuff that's at the risk end of the, the scale has just been trashed. And so uh, as we look at it, you got to stay with quality. And we think that, you know, you don't want too much debt, especially as interest rates start to, to head back up again. And you want companies that have pricing power in spite of, you know, any, any possibility of any deflationary pressures. You still have to have that. And so if you have those three things, you can fight what the Fed's doing. We, we think we're going to be okay. The Fed isn't going to go overboard uh, because they know that that's, uh, you know, something that doesn't play. And as I read their report, I did not see a half a percent rate hike in those minutes. Mm -hmm. So I think they're going to signal that if they really, really want to do that. All right. Well, maybe some comfort, like you said, for the, for the concerned. Barry, thank you as always. We appreciate it. Barry James with James Investment Research. Still ahead, a look at today's mystery chart soaring on a record fourth quarter. The name and what the CEO said about sustaining their momentum. That's next. As we head to break, take a quick look at Bitcoin. It's down 7% in today's session now with another leg lower in just the past hour. We'll be right back. Time for some show and tell where we show you the chart and tell the story. And it's DoorDash today. Still higher after its strong results last night. A record number of orders, 369 million, were placed in that quarter. The company has never missed earnings or revenue estimates. Pretty impressive for a new name. It's never traded lower the day after releasing results. It's up 10% right now. 
Here's what co-founder and CEO Tony Hsu told Squawk on the Street about the long-term goal to transform the restaurant industry. Really, our goal you know, from day one is really just to do two things, to transform local commerce. Build the largest local commerce app where we can bring the greatest amount of incremental demand to everybody inside the neighborhood. And secondly, teach these merchants, the small, medium, and large physical businesses, how to become digital powerhouses in their own right. And I think if we can achieve both of those goals, we'll achieve the goal of transforming local commerce. DoorDash shares are riding a five-month losing streak, and they're still down 60% from their all-time high, but again, getting a boost on earnings today. Still ahead, three more names set to report, and all of them are about 70% down from their 52-week highs. Roku, active users declining last quarter. Did they come back, or is this the new post-pandemic norm? Redfin, sticking with its eye-buying business after Zillow bailed on theirs. Will that help or hurt them? And then there's DraftKings, that stock losing momentum as mobile sports betting gains steam. Will revenue catch up this quarter? It's all coming up in Earnings Exchange. Celebrating Black History and featuring some of our CNBC contributors, here's Degas Wright with ways that people can make an impact in our communities. I think other people can impact our communities through two ways. One, to promote personal finance in every school system. The second thing, if you own a business or if you are an executive at a business, hire a college intern to give them that exposure to the industry. Those are two things everyone that is listening can have an impact on. Welcome back, everybody. It's time for another edition of Earnings Exchange, where we give you the story, the action, and the trade on three names gearing up to report. We really should call it Results Exchange, though, because no one's actually expected to report earnings. Let's begin with Roku. They're after the bell today. The stock's gotten crushed amid growing competition of smart TVs. It's down nearly 70% from the all-time highs. It dropped 9% after reporting a beat last quarter. Here with the story is Dom Chu, and CNBC contributor Todd Gordon, founder of New Age Wealth Advisors, is here to give us our trades today. Dom? kick things off for us. All right. So, so Kelly, we're talking a pandemic leader, right, to a reopening laggard that pretty much sums up what's been happening to many parts of the streaming video industry overall. Roku, definitely one of those stocks that investors have put front and center for those trends. So it's easy, of course, to build active users and total subscribers and revenue when tons of folks are stuck at home during a pandemic and lockdowns and work from home. But when things normalize, people normalize their activities, and, well, not everybody is centered on sitting in front of a TV or a tablet device. So you can see the estimates there, a loss of $0.09, cents, $894 million worth of revenue. That's a consensus. Remember, at the peak, Roku was a $64 billion market cap company. It's now closer to 20 to $21 billion at this point, which could make this a very compelling value play, maybe, if it can actually show investors that trends in revenue growth and active users are moving in the right direction. If not, it could be yet another volatile post-earnings reaction for that stock. Now, you mentioned some of those trends. Over the last eight earnings reports, Kelly, Roku stock has been up a coin toss, right? Four up days, four down days over the last eight quarters. With an average move, though, of roughly 7% higher or lower on an absolute basis. To that end, the options market right now is, get this, 
pricing in around a 16% move wow. in the stock, up or down. So more than double what it's been over the last eight quarters. So a lot more volatility anticipated this time around. We'll see if it comes to fruition. Does the Chew household use one of these dongles like Roku, Fire Stick, Chromecast, or do you guys have a smart TVs, Dom? All right, so we've got a combination. We've got game consoles. I've got an old Xbox One that I use for one of our main TVs, a number of Apple TV devices, and then we use a Fire Stick for one of the other, like, playrooms. All right. We don't use a Roku. That doesn't mean we couldn't. We just haven't had the opportunity to try that particular product. But streaming is, of course, like many millions of households, part of our life as well. Well, and Todd, I ask because I remember Danielle Shea bailing on Roku because she thinks it could literally go the way of the VCR with the growth and and commoditization of smart TVs. What do you do with the stock? Yeah, uh, I I owned it, Kelly. I cut it uh, in our growth portfolio in November. I'm with Dom. Uh, We're an Apple TV uh, family. We like having the interface rather than a smart TV. So, uh, look, it's the number one smart TV uh, operating system in the U.S., surprisingly. But the stock just absolutely got uh, crushed. It lost support from a technical point of view at about 170. Looking at the communications, if we can, real quick, um, dropping down from comms, which have been out of favor. If you look at the in-favor industries within communications, Roku's part of it. It's the in-person movie theaters, uh, Lionsgate, Disney. It's the in-person places that are leading. So I, I don't like, uh, from a rotation point of view, um, looking at the quarter um, right now and comparing to last quarter, active accounts last quarter were up about 23%. I think they have about 55 million, uh, but subscriber growth slowed, and that's what they're going to be looking for. They talked about supply chain issues with the TV market, and Kelly, they're looking to get into the TV market, which I hmm. don't understand. Yeah. Apple thought about it. They didn't do it. Uh, it's going to crush their margins. I, I, I really don't get it. Plus, they lost the big top three executives who is uh, chief of ads and platform. Uh, so they're talking about also going into uh, content, which I don't know how they're going to compete with the other big guys. Yeah, Farron, again, the shares are down 7.5% today. Roku CEO Anthony Wood will be on CNBC in an exclusive interview this afternoon at 4 p.m. on Closing Bell so he can address some of these issues. Uh, we'll leave it there, Don. We appreciate it very much. Let's turn to Redfin now. Also after the bell today, the street expecting a loss of 31 cents a share for the fourth quarter, a nearly 400% drop from the same period last year. Record low housing inventory, been a problem. Shares are down 20% since Jan 1. Diana Olick is here with more on the story. Diana? Well, Kelly, first and foremost, we're going to be watching for any mention of rising mortgage rates and how that's going to hit sales. And of course, as you mentioned, supply. We're at record low levels of homes for sale right now, which is not so good if you're in the business of selling homes. So despite gaining market share, Redfin Realtor earnings have been falling. Also, we're watching for any update on the company's iBuyer, that is home flipping program. Zillow ran into trouble with that. They ended it. And Redfin CEO has said it's doing well, but it's been losing money on that business. And finally, Rent. Redfin recently acquired RentPath, which owns several rental platforms. So we want to see if they're getting heavier into the rental range because, of course, as we said, home sales not doing so well. Kelly? Yeah. And Todd, what would you do with the stock? Are you a fan here? Or how do you expect it to trade? I, I don't. I'm not a fan. Uh, the only one I've owned, uh, Diana mentioned it, Zillow. I've owned Open Door in the past. I cut it. Uh, you know, there's evidence. CBC had a great article about uh, rates going up. Evidence of refis are down by half of the year. Housing markets elevated. You're up 18 and a half percent. Mortgage uh, balances are new highs. 30-year mortgage is above four percent. Uh, and there were some negative comments out of Redfin uh, two weeks ago. They said they expect uh, sales to slow due to rates and lack of inventory. They also said a quarter of the first 
first time home buyers were using stimulus money for down payment. So that wow. can't be good. Um, we've, we've rotated out of any real estate exposure. It's done really well in 21, but uh, we rebalanced the portfolios in November and we caught all real estate, starting to see evidence of those higher rates, starting to see rotation out of real estate, despite those high yeah. prices. Uh, and there's a lot of discount in this low real estate, uh, low fee uh, market that Redfin's in. So I'm not a fan. Diana, we've heard this from a number of people in different parts of the housing industry, some on the builder side, some on kind of the Home Depot watching those stocks. Now Todd's saying, that, you know, he's got housing out of his portfolio. Yeah, I mean, look, we're seeing that the, the peak is now. And in fact, when we saw housing starts this morning, we got those numbers out. We saw housing starts coming down, single family uh, permits were up slightly, but housing starts down. It shows that the builders are not going to be as active because of rising mortgage rates potentially. And then, as you say, with those stocks, when you buy a home, you tend to decorate it. You go to Home Depot, you go to, you know, Sherwin-Williams, et cetera, and you personalize it. So I think the housing sector, you know, it was a massive pandemic play, but like other pandemic plays, it's cooling off a bit. All right. We'll leave it there. Diana, thank you very much. Final stock this, uh, for this exchange is DraftKings. It reports before the bell tomorrow. It faces growing competition from brick-and-mortar casinos entering online betting. And it just paid out nearly $200 million in Super Bowl bets as well. Shares are down 16% on the year. They're down 70% from the highs. Contessa Brewer has the story. What are you watching, Contessa? Well, okay, number one, if we take a look at what the street anticipates for revenue coming in, it's more than $440 million for the quarter. Pretty good, right? But look at the loss it's expecting per share here, a loss of 79 cents. What the focus is going to be of this report and the earnings call, I anticipate, is going to be how much cash burn DraftKings is going through. How much does it cost them to acquire their customers compared to their competitors? When do they anticipate being profitable? We've heard from CEO Jason Robbins previously that he anticipates that being somewhere in 2023. But Penn reported earnings. It spends a lot less on customer acquisition, marketing promotions, and it says it may be profitable by the end of the year in its interactive business. That's number one. Number two, I'm looking for how are they doing with iGaming? Right now, they're live in five states where iGaming is legal. But consider that the American Gaming Association just said of the 53 plus billion dollars that came in last year for gaming revenues, 14% of that was mobile gambling. So if you imagine the trajectory of this iCasinos, these games that you can play on your computer, on your phone, that's where the real growth potential is. And DraftKings has said in the past, it's struggling. It's one reason it acquired Golden Nugget Online. And third, of course, we're heading into March. I want to hear about March Madness and what they think, based on what happened with Super Bowl, what they think their big take is going to be. Remember, March Madness as a total tournament usually rakes in more bets than Super Bowl as a single event. Wow. Todd, I don't. I think we're 0 for 3 for you on these names today. And granted, this is like, the, they're, they're poster children of what's not been working in the market in many ways. But DraftKings, what do you think the, the trade is here? I, I, and you remember last time I was on, you gave me a hard time for being very positive on stocks that I didn't <laughs> own particularly. I don't know if you remember that last time. So, yeah, over three. Don't own the stock. You know, we, we gamble full living in the market, so I really don't touch it. True. It's a pure online play. And as I mentioned about with Roku, you know, the, the return to normalcy post-COVID uh, uh, gambling stocks like Las Vegas Sands are working, Win MGM. MGM had a great report. So, again, uh, I, I like that sector more. Uh, they were a uh, recent uh, gambling in New York, just came on. 
Uh, people are looking for a lot from the Super Bowl numbers, but I think, again, a lot of those Super Bowl betters are one time and they're done. Um, it, technically, DraftKings has been mushed. That's an old gambling term some of you may have heard. 70% uh, from the highs. I don't really see any support down here. Uh, Contessa said, I think Penn's a better alternative. I like uh, what they're doing, their technical support. Their EBITDA margin is like minus 100%. Their expenses are going up. Free cash flow is dropping. It's trading seven times uh, price to sales, which is above their competitors. And it's also very heavily shorted. Jim Chanos was on there. Uh, there's about 10% of the outstanding float is short, so I wouldn't touch this one either. Well, a very clear take. We appreciate it. Todd, thanks so much for all of our trades today. Todd Gordon, Contessa Brewer will be following DraftKings. Contessa, thanks for bringing us that story as well. And DraftKings CEO will be on CNBC tomorrow morning on Squawk on the Street. Jason Robbins in a first on CNBC interview. You don't want to miss it. Still ahead, President Biden says there's every indication that Russia is prepared to go into Ukraine. So why isn't oil spiking today? There's something else at play here. We'll tell you what it is next. President Biden says the threat of Russia invading Ukraine remains very high. So why aren't we seeing a spike in oil prices? Oil's down two and a half percent today for the answer. We have to turn to Iran. Pippa Stevens has more. Pippa. Hey, Kelly, the oil market is caught in a tug of war. On one hand, we've got the Russia and Ukraine tensions supporting prices. On the other hand, we've got progress in the Iran nuclear talks, which could lead to more supply in the market. And today it is all about Iran. The nation's chief nuclear negotiator saying yesterday in a tweet that, quote, we are closer than ever to an agreement. Although he did add that nothing is agreed until everything is agreed. A deal could bring more than one million barrels per day back to the market and help alleviate pressures we've seen as demand bounces back. There's no agreement yet, but Amrita Sen from Energy Aspects saying the market is now pricing in an imminent deal. It's also important to put today's move in context since oil is still up about 20 percent for the year and holding above 90. Remember, it was less than two years ago that crude plunged into negative territory and now we're above 90. Stephen Brennock from brokerage PVM saying the next few days are make or break for oil. An inflection point is drawing near that could see prices move $15 in either direction on these geopolitical factors. Kelly? $15 in either direction on geopolitics. And yet, what does the underlying supply and demand balance tell us? Well, exactly. There's a lot of questions about that as demand bounces back and supply remains really tight. And again, geopolitic events are very important for this market. But Traders say they wouldn't have had quite this type of an impact had it not been for the underlying market, which is so tight. You know, last month, OPEC missed its output goal by 900,000 barrels per day. So they're struggling to bring output back. U.S. shale is staying under taps. We heard from the Devon CEO this morning who told Squawk on the street that they don't really have plans to increase their output. So supply remains constrained. Demand is bouncing back. And that is why people are calling for that $100 oil level. How significant, Pippa, would the return of Iranian barrels be to a market where some say they're already in the market, they're just not officially so? Well, if they came back, you know, this is more than one million new barrels per day on the market. And so while some of that might have been priced in, it hasn't actually hit the market yet. And in a market where it is trading on the different geopolitical events that we're getting, any kind of clarity around that is really important. You know, the oil market 
really responds to these types of events. Yeah. And people don't like unknowns. So once we know, solidify what's going to happen, that can lead to some, you know, shaking out of these volatile moves that we've seen over the past few days and weeks and months, really. It has been on the back burner. It is in the forefront today with crude down. Pip, but thank you so much. And that does it for The Exchange, everybody. You've been listening to The Exchange. Make sure you're subscribed to get each episode every day, same time, same place. CNBC has quick and easy to understand business news updates at the open midday and close every weekday. Markets, money, and more from Wall Street to Main Street. I'm CNBC's Jessica Ettinger. Follow and listen to CNBC Business News Updates wherever you get your podcasts.